Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. Hey, it's Guy here, and you're listening to an audio broadcast of Market Call. That's MKT Call. It's a video series I do with Dan Nathan every Monday through Thursday, live at 1 p.m. Eastern. We break down the big market-moving headlines and offer trade ideas. Each week, we are joined by Carter Worth of Worth Charting and Liz Young from SoFi for their investment analysis. So check it out. And if you like it, follow at Market Call on Twitter and subscribe to Risk Reversal Media on YouTube so you never miss an episode. Top of the hour, Tuesday, June 7th, 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Guy Adama here, always joined by Dan Nathan, although I wasn't here yesterday. I won't tell you what I was doing because, you know what, nobody needs to hear that. (laughs) Um, But also, um, just thrilled to be back. It's been great. It's been an interesting couple weeks. I missed a market call because I was flying. I mean, it's been nuts, but I'm back. Tuesday, as I mentioned, the 7th of June. Market Call brought to you by our presenting sponsors, CME Group, where risk meets opportunity. Dan, we are powered by Open Exchange. Check them out at Open Exchange TV on the Twitter. Obviously, I know you don't really care particularly about this, but we have a game for this evening in Tampa. Yeah, I do. Uh, New York Rangers looking to take a commanding 3-1 lead. Obviously, what? Tampa looking to tie it at two, headed back to New York. Why, why do you always do that? You think I don't? You think I'm some Johnny Come Lately Rangers fan or no. something? I wasn't there in '94 with you, guy. You know, like at that, and when I saw you tweeting about your ticket stubs in '94. Listen, dude, I've been to. I've probably been to more Rangers games in the last five years than you've been to. True. I was at Game That's Two true. the other night at MSG. I'm just saying. Listen, you need all sorts of people. Flying those, you know, those hankies or whatever the heck they're doing there. It is an amazing atmosphere, and I love it that you have been a lifelong fan. Now that being said, we do play. What do we play? Market call bingo. Sure, we do. I, I have no idea how to play bingo. I probably haven't played in forty years. But if Amanda can figure out how to anybody who's playing to take some guesses about what you were doing yesterday and work that into the bingo game, I don't know how that would work, but. TMI, let's not do it. It's great to have you back. Carter did some heavy lifting. Guy, let's talk about this because Carter and I did do a segment Mm -hmm. yesterday. We were talking about Amazon and the bounce that it had after its two-for-one split, but then we got to the fun uh, fundamentals of it. We're talking about their disappointing guidance that they gave in April about their retail sales, followed by Walmart, followed by Target. And then this morning we wake up two and a half weeks. May 18th is when Target last guided. The stock was down 25% in a day. So Carter and I were talking about the technicals. We thought it looked kind of nasty, their inability to kind of get any steam after such big gaps, both Walmart and Target. They guide down today, guy. Talk to me what you think about a company like Target guiding down meaningfully. And really, the commentary is what I think is most important about the U.S. consumer two times in two weeks. 
What, what cha- well, I mean, obviously, what changed in two weeks is the first thing I'd say. I mean, that ample opportunity to say exactly this, I think, two weeks ago, maybe they thought somehow magically things would improve. They didn't. They were forced to say, what does it say about the consumer? Well, we've talked about this a number of times. I don't think it's necessarily an indictment of the consumer, although we're going to look at consumer credit a little bit later. I think what it speaks to, though, is consumers clearly moving down the food chain to buying, obviously, lower priced goods, which doesn't really augur particularly well for a lot of these retailers who had the wrong inventory. 32% inventory build for Walmart is catastrophic. And that, again, is a word I'm choosing to use. Typically, 8% is considered high. 16% is off the charts. Nobody's ever heard of 32%. That's like a four standard deviation move. That was a problem. And I said on Fast Money that evening, Walmart is praying, Doug McMillan is praying that you hear similar from Target on the next day. And that's pretty much what you got. So what does it mean? Well, it means they both suck, number one, but maybe it does portend something about the consumer. Maybe we should be looking closer at some of these retailers. I think that's probably exactly what you and Carter were talking about yesterday. In terms of Target, real quick, we might as well throw a chart up because we have it. Um, This was a $268 stock at its zenith. And if you look at it now, I mean, I don't say it's been cut in half, but you're talking about a 38 to 40 percent move from peak to trough. That is not insignificant, Dan. And although it's trading okay today, even though it's down a bit, um, I still think there's some pain ahead. Yeah. And so when we're talking about this inventory build, I mean, you and I have been saying this, I think, for months when we think about some of the components that go into some kind of higher cost items. We know that semiconductors are a big part of that. And we know that that because of the disrupted supply chains, because China has had the zero COVID policy, access to chips for all sorts of products from, you know, washing machines to, to, to televisions to cars have been really restrained here. And so all of a sudden now, you could have seen double ordering. You have these big inventories. Some of these retailers are going to have to discount them, but this could be happening at a very difficult time for the consumer because the takeaway that we had and our friend Danny Moses, who we're our co-host on On The Tape podcast, has been mentioning for a couple months now, higher energy and higher food costs are eating into your cart at Walmart or at Target. And when you think about some of those higher priced items, though, that Brian Cornell. CEO of Target mentioned last month that that consumers are kind of putting off their high um, priced appliances. Look at this Whirlpool chart. And this is one I just think it's interesting because it's also tied to the housing trade guy. And we've been talking about how weak home builders stocks have been of late. We know that the 30 year mortgage had a precipitous rise over the last few months. What does this chart look like to you in the Whirlpool? Doesn't look great to me, man. Well, if Carter were here, he would put those little lines, those little oval type of thing. And he'd be like, the lines draw themselves. This is a textbook head and shoulders pattern. Yeah. Uh, the measured move is going to be significant to the downside. And I think you're exactly right. And if you ask yourself, I mean, we're not here to sort of cast dispersions, as they say, and to talk poorly about Whirlpool. But if Target and Walmart are feeling this, how are other companies to be insulated from it? This is not just a Target and Walmart specific thing. Now, in terms of the inventory build, I mean, Walmart completely whiffed on that without question. We talked about it at the time. But to think that other retailers are not feeling the same thing and forget about retailers. I think it goes across a swath of industries where people overstocked, hoping that demand would still be there and that demand might be waning at the exact wrong time. So that's extraordinarily deflationary, which I totally get. So in some ways, that's doing the Fed's job for them. The problem is, which we will also talk about, you have very persistent and sticky energy prices here, which I said we'll get into. 
Yeah. Yeah. You know, this was really interesting. Joe Wiedenthal from uh, from Bloomberg, the stalwart at the stalwart on Twitter. He is a great follow. I, I thought this chart was really interesting. He posted it this morning. Guy said the latest ocean container bookings data reveals that despite strong levels of inbound cargo during the first five months of 2022, 2022, easy for me to say, import demand is not just softening, it's dropping off a cliff. And I think this kind of plays well into this idea that we had double ordering, we had supply demand dynamics, we had this notion that the economy was going to be rip roaring out of the pandemic, but the pandemic won't end. And now that we have inflation, we have the potential for job losses kind of ticking up in a slower growth environment. You know, you're starting to see maybe import demand really fall off a cliff. What does this chart say to you? Just as we get through, hopefully, COVID, we're going to be walking into the next sort of um, the next what in the next problem, which is going to come in the form of jobs, wage growth, and the yeah. fact that people are spending too much money on things that historically they haven't had to spend that much money on, and that's cutting into a lot of these durable goods that they have been buying. And you ask yourself, you know, if the consumer starts to feel the pinch, what happens to corporate margins? Well, by definition, they have to go down. I mean, margins are going to get crushed at both Walmart and Target. But what does it mean for margins at Amazon as well? I mean, this goes across a number of, again, different industries. And I think it's problematic. I don't think the broader market is fully taking that into consideration. You talk about it all the time. PE multiple is great. That's the price part. But the earnings price, earnings part is the other side. And almost by definition, I can't foresee in a situation where earnings are going to start to grow in a meaningful way here in this backdrop. So that's what it means to me, Dan. Yeah, well, one of those th- major inputs, I think, is crude oil. You've been talking about it. <clears throat> it's been holding that uptrend from those kind of early December lows. That's when the administration tapped the SP, uh, the SPR, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. You were very critical of it at the time, not being political, just saying it actually is a drop in the bucket, right? If you think about it, it was more just kind of, you know, I think they were trying to be proactive and say that we're really focused on keeping gas at the pump down. Well, it hasn't done that, right? We're seeing gas gas at six, seven, eight dollars um, around the country here. And crude oil looks like it wants to make a beeline for that parabolic move that it had in March. We also have a longer term chart in crude guy. And if you look at the sort of spikes that we've seen, you know, they've kind of been into recessions. We had Mike mm-hmm. Wilson on our podcast on the tape a couple of weeks ago. He said every consumer led recession is led by a spike in commodities. Talk to me about your view on crude here. Let's say it gets back to those March highs. Let's just say we do have a softening economy, even with China coming back online. Are we likely to see commodity prices moderate, specifically crude oil? Well, that's a tough one because I do think crude's going back to those levels. And again, I'm not. This is not political by any stretch of the imagination. But they could literally release every barrel from the SPR, yeah, and that wouldn't no make a dent in gas prices because if you look at refineries, they're running at 100% capacity. And oh, by the way, you know, we're not building new refineries in this country. That's a problem, but that's probably for another show. And oh, by the way, that's the reason Valero seemingly makes a new all-time high every single day, a name we've talked about at length here on Market Call. What does it mean? Well, I think at a certain point, crude's going to exhaust itself, but I think it's going to trade through those March highs through 130. I think there's going to be further pain ahead. And what I've said a number of times, Dan, is the headwind in the form of zero COVID in China is going to abate at some point. And when they release the spigot there, no pun intended, that's going to be create a tailwind for crude. And I think that's exactly what you're seeing here. So although you st- we're talking about very deflationary things in terms of inventory builds and stuff, in terms of retail, 
the crude oil market has not got that memo from the Federal Reserve. One thing that's interesting, Guy, is crude was moving higher, you know, for a better part of the last year or so. You know, there were times where the energy stocks were kind of disconnected from the price of the commodity, where investors, at least in the equity market, were like able to say, okay, that might do that because of a supply demand, but the equities are not likely to move in concert. Well, they have been right now. Look at the XLE, the ETF that tracks the major integrateds. We know Exxon, Mm -hmm. Chevron, and Schlumberger as a driller make up, what, 40, 45% of the weight of that thing it's basically right back at those 2008 highs and you see where it is right here it could make an easy beeline if you suck crude at 130 you know the xle could find its well back to those 2014 talk to us about this and we also have a chart of the oih the oil service names and i know this one on a long-term basis is looking really interesting i think crude could go sideways here i think the market could go sideways here and i think these energy names will continue to rally you don't need again just my opinion you don't need the commodity to rally any further than it has in order for these stocks to go higher I mean, you mentioned 2008. I will say this, and I've said it a number of times, not only here, but on Fast Money, that these companies that you just mentioned are run so much more efficiently than they were 14 years ago when these stocks were making those highs. So I think these stocks can continue to go higher. I think this level, that horizontal line will be taken out. The only potential headwind I see for these big integrated names come in the form of some of the political rankering going around saying they're profiteering from higher prices and they're hurting the consumer and this, that, and the other thing. So if this becomes political and if sort of a crosshair is put on the back of these big integrated names, maybe that'll take some of the steam out of of these stocks. I don't think that's going to happen, but we'll we'll see how it goes forward. I'll say this, valuations are compelling, and I think they continue to grind higher from here. Yeah, so let's look at the OIH ETF that tracks oil services, Schlumberger, Halliburton, Baker Hughes make up about 40% of the Mm -hmm. weight. Look at this chart going back to 2011. You see that downtrend that has been in place. It's picking up just above that, above 300 here. Do you feel the same way about the service names as you do about large integrated? Even cheaper on evaluation, you mentioned Halliburton, Schlumberger, Baker Hughes. Those are the three big names. And if you go back and look, and we've talked about this, that 245 level, which was resistance on the way up, which we outlined, if you recall, when it went from 175 to 245, we said it'll take a pause here, pull back. That happened. We said next time it won't. It'll go through and trade north of 300. That happened. Then a couple times we've traded down to 245, 250, and have held. Now here we are at 308 or thereabouts. I think we continue to go higher for the same reasons. I mean, you mentioned the big cap integrated names. I'll mention these um, Schlumberger and Halliburton specifically. Again, valuations are compelling, run much better, balance sheets much better, crude can go sideways, and I think these stocks continue to grind higher. And I'm not suggesting we go back to all-time highs, but you know, here at 308, I could easily see us north of 350 um, by late July, early August. Yeah, so we spent some time talking about what what are the major inputs of inflation right now. And again, I think a lot of people are calling for peak inflation. We're going to get a peak at the at the GDP or excuse me, at the uh, CPI Mm -hmm. for last month in the next week or so. And again, whether it's got an eight handle or a nine handle, it really doesn't change a whole heck of a lot. I mean, the Fed is right now. They seem fairly well committed to fighting it. We know that there's a Fed meeting next week. We'll talk about what the CME Fed watch tool is expecting it hasn't changed a whole heck of a lot but i think important here guy is the fact that some of the like the kind of 
economic indicators about the consumer that makes up what 70% of our GDP right now, they're not going in the right direction. They don't really feel particularly great. Here's a couple of them right here. Amanda put together a little bit of a montage. America's saving rate hits great recession era lows. Consumer credit card debt and annual percentage rates are heading to an all-time high. We know layoffs are coming. We heard what Microsoft said. They're slowing hiring. Tesla said they're going to cut 10% of the salaried workforce. All these fintech companies are, are, are cutting. There's going to be more of it, right? And this brings me back to about a month ago. We had David Rosenberg of Rosenberg Research on our podcast on, on the tape, and he said this, and I think this is really important. I just listened to it again, and it stuck in my head from a month ago. Small business is in the weeds of the economy. The three-month decline in small business employment recession usually is right around the corner on average, going back 70 years. If the unemployment rate is up three-tenths, guy, just three-tenths, and we just hit 3.6, which was the pre-pandemic low, 3.5% or so, which was a 40-year low, okay, then the recession is staring you in the face. So we could go to 3.9 or 4% on a percentage basis. That'd be a lot, but we were at 10% during the pandemic. Speak to me about what you think is going on with the consumer. Well, I I think that's exactly right. You know, credit card debt's going to approach a trillion dollars. I mean, you know, we throw these numbers around seemingly meaningless. That's a staggering number. And we're talking about all-time highs. We're also talking about it in the form of interest rates continue to go higher. 30-year mortgage rates have doubled. Uh, You don't have the commensurate wage growth to back that up. I mean, none of this is particularly good. And when they're spending money on things that they don't want to necessarily be spending money on, uh, i.e. energy, that's a real problem. And if the market were to start to sell off, that's even more problematic. You've heard me say it a million times. To me, all consumer sentiment is an overlay of the S&P 500. So if the market were to go down in a precipitous fashion, I think that would be all you need for the consumer spending to stop on a dime because everything is is absolutely in place for that to happen now. So what does it mean? Well, I don't think it's particularly strong. And as you mentioned, when 73% of this economy is driven by people buying stuff, if they stop buying that stuff, that's going to be a real problem. And you know, I remember when Rosie mentioned that, a three-tenths of a percent move into the upside and the tick up in unemployment, that's sort of the precursor or augurs a recession. Again, I don't know what that necessarily means for the market. And I don't know what necessarily changes. We yeah. talked to Mike Wilson about that on our podcast, but we'll see how it plays itself out. You know, Guy, you said so emphatically, all you need, and I was just hoping you were going to say love, because I really feel like all you need is love. Is love something that I be- love uh, Beatles. Love is, all, love is all you need. I'm sure you watched it in real time as they were at the Ed Sullivan Theater that day. I was in there, 19- actually. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, let's talk about a term that we've thrown around a little bit. And we started talking about it on our podcast. Again, listen, people, this is a companion thing. The market call today is brought to you by CME, but on the tape is also brought to you by CME. And so this will end up in our on the tape feed too. So check it out. But Danny Moses has been talking about stagflation. So what is stagflation? Kind of weakening growth, right? With a higher rate environment where, you know, higher inflation is going to do all the things that we just talked about, whether it be with consumers or kind of cut back enterprise spending here. So the World Bank, they're cutting back global growth, the word stagflation being thrown around yet. Guy, I got to tell you, we've talked about recessions too. Q1, we had a negative print in US GDP. Now, the, the technical definition is two consecutive quarters. The Atlanta Fed GDP now, it's really coming down pretty hard here, brother. It's like literally getting to, I think, below 1%. You know, we're going to have a really bad month in the economy, despite what China does here, given where 
all of the things that we just talked about and some of the signaling that we're getting from some big companies, if it is declared that Q2 GDP is negative and we have an official recession, what does that mean then? Just the absolute acknowledgement of the R word. That's interesting. You know, what does it mean politically? What does it mean for the midterm elections? There's so many ramifications for this that, you know, I can't even begin. I don't know. But the most important thing is I don't necessarily know what it means for the market. Obviously, it's not a great thing to go through. But with that said, I would submit it's an important part of the business cycle. Why? Because during these recessions, I think the cream rises to the top and you got to go through these things to sort of separate the wheat from the chaff. But again, I'm not an economist. I'm not paid to do it. What I find fascinating, though, is things that we were talking about literally a year ago on On the Tape with Danny Moses are now starting to come to fruition. And people that get paid to sort of see these things, i.e. a David Malpass or a Janet Yellen, you know, they're just shrugging their shoulders and say, oh, we didn't see it coming. We missed that one. And I get exercised because I'm not the Treasury Secretary. I'm not the Fed Chair. But to me, all this stuff was as clear as day, and now it's coming, to, it's coming to light right before our very eyes. And I said it a million times in terms of inflation that these Fed geniuses were begging for. Be careful what you wish for because you're going to get it. And the problem with stagflation, and I think you would agree with me on this one, as many of the things the Fed can control, stagflation is something that they have no tools to combat. They have no weapons in their arsenal to deal with. Yeah, it's interesting. We've been talking about yields and the way they've been moving around here. And we know that, you know, again, the Fed has been fairly hawkish. The CME Fed Watch tool is suggesting 50 basis point hike next week. And then again in July here. So they're going to continue um, probably in that kind of very hawkish tone, except if the data gets weak, you know, fairly quickly. And so again, if you look at the 10 year US Treasury yield, it was interesting guy that early last month, we had that move to basically the 2018 highs about 3.2% or so. And then it pulled back to 2.7. And I know that you were just aghast at that volatility, given the fact that the Fed didn't change their tune about what they were doing on the short end. And so here we are yesterday, the big story is we were above 3%. We pulled back a little bit. Uh, we're above 3% today or so. Given everything, we, you and I are in agreement here. We think the economy is weakening. We think the consumer is weakening. We think that even if we had peak inflation, it's going to remain high, right? Which is going to continue to kind of weigh on corporate profits, consumer spending, all of that. So what do you do with yields right here? What does data dependent mean, though? And I'm not, I'm not trying to be a wise guy here. What are they yeah. data dependent on? I will tell you flat out, the dependent data that they're looking at is softening without question. I mean, I think one of the reasons yields went from 3.2% in 10 year down to 270 is exactly that reason. Data started to get soft. With that said, you know what's not softening? Inflation problems. I mean, the form of energy continues to go higher. So when you talk about data dependent, I don't know what they're looking at because I will tell you the economic data will get worse I think the inflation problem will get worse as well. So they're sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place. Rates are not going higher now because the economy is magically getting better. Anything but that, quite frankly. Rates are going higher because it's now concerned about inflation. And, you know, in this environment, Dan, I will tell you, we used to be in it doesn't matter what happens. It's bullish in terms of yields. I would submit right now it doesn't matter what happens. It's bearish 
for the broader market. If yields go higher, they're not going higher because the market's improving. And if yields go lower, they're going lower because the market's selling off in a precipitous fashion. And that's yeah. just my two cents on this entire thing. Well, it's funny. I mean, it's we're 22 minutes in and we haven't even brought up a, a chart of the S&P 500 futures here. And it's interesting to think about, yeah, it used to be low low rates, right? Good for stocks. And your point is, is like, if rates go lower for the wrong reasons, that will be bad for corporate earnings. It'll be bad for the S&P 500 valuation and therefore you're going to see the price go lower look at the one-year chart i have the s&p i drew just a couple like pretty simple lines here you see that downtrend from 4600 that was the high in late march here you also look at that 4200 level going back a year and that is by all accounts i mean pretty reasonable technical resistance here guy we had that little flag we had that nice bounce off of the may lows you and i were both in agreement we were oversold there we were picking at stocks okay no doubt about it we don't like to press lows like that let's see what it could do here at 4200 you know we have a market that feels like it wants to rally the news keeps coming out it's not great which is probably not bad price action if you think about it. But it, the longer it sticks around here, the more likely, in my opinion, the S&P probably takes a turn. Now, all that being said, you tell me as we get closer to quarter end, might we see a little bit of a mark for an S&P that's down 13% of the year? Maybe. I don't know. How do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, we've seen that before without question, obviously. I mean, we're early June now, so I don't think that's necessarily a conversation we want to start to have. But obviously, as we get closer Towards the end of the month, we will talk about that. But I still think another leg lower, and I've been pretty steadfast. And I think we've done a decent job. You know, the first move down to 39.30, we talked about it that day on the close. We said, look, setup is pretty good here. Market can rally another 5 or 6%. That's exactly what happened. You had the subsequent sell-off to 38.10, bounced off of that another 5.5%, maybe even a little bit more actually from trough to peak. But I still think that 3750 is in the cross. As you have a 200-day moving average, it is effectively rolling over. You're talking about tapping up to this resistance level, which you outlined very well. And I think it's just, a, well, again, my opinion. I think it's a foregone conclusion that we trade lower. To be bullish here, you need so many things to work in your favor. And I just don't see it coming to fruition, not least of which this Fed backtracking, which I don't think they're going to do anytime yeah. soon because the problem that they're facing in form of inflation. And again, the market's built on a couple of different things, revenue, revenue growth, earnings and earnings growth. And those are the four pillars. Uh, maybe you have one of them right now in a meaningful way. The rest of them are starting to wane here, Dan. Yeah, well, it's funny when you think about like, what are the sort of tape bombs that could get the market to rally? If it came out and said there was some sort of like neutrality agreement between Russia and Ukraine, I, I don't know how much the stock market even rallies at this point. It feels kind of baked into the cake, if you will. Let's look at the NASDAQ futures really quickly. I have a one-year chart. Looks the same guy, um, that 13,000 level. The only difference here is that the NASDAQ is down 23% of the year versus an S&P that's down a little less than 13%. And again, you know, you and I both think that a large part of the earnings contraction could happen in some mega cap sort of tech names. And that's where the valuation compression could come. And so 13,000 in the NASDAQ futures definitely looks interesting. But guy, take a look. I'm zooming out to the start of 2020 mm -hmm. on the NASDAQ futures here. I got this hard deck here. You see it around 12,000. How do we get to the highway that would be the danger zone, if you will. You see what I did there, buddy? I like what you did there. By the way, if you haven't seen uh, Top Gun Maverick run, don't walk to go see it. It's tremendous. But, I, you know, I'd watch Tom Cruise read the phone book, uh, full <laughs> disclosure. How do we get there? I'll tell you exactly how we get there. Microsoft warned on the back of FX. I mean, okay, that's fine. That, you know, that's not for me to say. 
But I'll tell you, if these companies start to warn on the back of demand, and I think yeah. you would 100% agree with this because you've said it a number of times, I think that's how we get not only to the hard deck, but we get below the hard deck. So you're starting to see some of the first pre-announcements from some of these companies for a myriad of different reasons. If you start to hear demand is falling off a cliff, which, by the way, you talked about earlier in the show, that's going to be a problem for some of these NASDAQ names. Yeah, and, and again, just to reiterate, you know, right now we had that May jobs report, and a lot of people were saying on Friday there was a bit of a Goldilocks, but we're also seeing headlines from Tesla, from Microsoft, from Coinbase, from Ro I mean, the list goes on and on here, right? And we know that the participation rate is getting better, but if we were to see, and going back to that quote from Rosie, just a like mild uptick in unemployment, that's where demand falls mm -hmm. off a cliff, at least from a consumer standpoint, and then if 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 you have big corporations cutting headcount, they're going to be cutting other forms of spending, which will weigh on the economy. All right. Last thing we're going to hit here, Guy Donnie, near and dear to your heart, not really, uh, is crypto here. I love the crypto. Or, well, love what I was going to say, near and dear to your heart would be a bipartisan crypto regulatory overhaul. How's that sound? We had a Republican and a Democrat standing on Capitol Hill in agreement on how crypto maybe should, not even how it should be regulated, who it should be regulated by. They're saying it should not be the SEC. It should be the CFTC. It should be viewed as a commodity. And you can make a lot of good cases probably for that. And I think a lot of crypto folks are actually happy to see this because it puts greater framework around it, right? If you're I think looking that's for exactly right. Yeah. Listen, that's what Brian Kelly's talked about. He's not scared of this. He actually embraces this. It's important, I think. It goes from being the Wild West to sort of being governed under some sort of agency. And we'll see what happens. I can understand why the headline risk here is to the downside. But I think when the dust settles, people realize that's not nearly as negative as they think. With that said, and I think you would agree, uh, it's been pretty stubborn around this 30,000 level. We really haven't been able to get out of our own way. We traded down to 25.5. We bounced up to, I want to say, close to 34,000. But this 30,000 level has been sort of sideways for a while. One has to ask himself, how long can we trade here? Are we doing the next leg lower? Or the next leg higher. I think Carter thinks lower. I agree with him. I don't know what the catalyst will be. I think a lot of people are hoping that a Fed pivot back to being dovish will be the catalyst for crypto to go higher. I just don't think that's happening anytime soon. Yeah, so Carter had a tweet this morning and he had a note out on worthcharting.com. The tweet's pretty funny here. I think that he has really upped his game on his memes. Mm -hmm. Guy, maybe you have to I do the, the same here. But he's showing Bitcoin and Ethereum. They just look like head and shoulder tops. We're right on those necklines. He thinks that they are bombs away lower. I just threw up a quick chart right here. You see it. I mean, the more time they spend here, the greater the likelihood is that we have a retest. I think you said that, that 25.5 was that intraday low you know, from, I don't know, a, a month ago or so. Um, again, you know, this is one where I think the people who are in it for the long haul don't mind lower prices. It gives them more time to kind of kind of get out some of the weak hands and then kind of reload. Again, I'm much more interested in Ethereum and the stuff that's being built on that smart contract protocol than I am at Bitcoin. I am no maximalist guy, Donnie. And that's that, buddy. I mean, that is the market call. You're kidding. It's what's yeah. 130. Well, I don't know how you did playing your market call bingo. We didn't say a number of things. I know we didn't say the word that begins with a T that I won't say because if I say it, you will effectively get bingo. Uh, please enjoy the Ranger game this evening, 8 p.m. Eastern time. I expect a full-throttled uh, Tampa Bay fan base, but I also expect the Rangers to come out determined. 
I'm looking for a W again, hopefully closing it out on Thursday. Dan, I know you're rolling your eyes, but that's it for Market Call today, June 7th. I want to thank CME Dan, where risk meets opportunity. And of course, we're powered by Open Exchange. We'll be back tomorrow, which will be Wednesday, 1 p.m. And the aforementioned Carter Braxton Worth of Worth Charting will be joining us. See you then, folks. See you later. Thanks. Thanks.